Well, good morning, church. All right, let's try it again. Well, good morning, church. There it is. Good morning, folks. Good morning, good morning. Welcome. Welcome to this wonderful time of worship. We always want to especially say welcome to those of you who may be the first time you're at Johnson Ferry. Welcome. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time you're in a church. Welcome. Maybe some of you, it's your first Sunday after you've made the decision to follow Christ. So welcome to you as well. We are thrilled that you're here. And to everyone else, welcome. It is good to be here today. It's good to worship God today. And I want to invite you right now to go ahead and find the book of Hebrews, the end of the New Testament, and chapter 8, as we continue our series uh, that Pastor Clay started many, many, many moons ago for us. Um, and we will keep going in this wonderful book, sometimes difficult book, let's just acknowledge it, sometimes it is hard, but it is such a wonderful book, and I hope that this morning, as we continue, it's still morning, yeah, I can say that, it's this morning that we will just delve in and dig in uh, as we just wrestle with this text, which is, I'm not going to lie to you guys, chapter 8 is more of chapter 7, and chapter 7 was a lot to chew on last week, but it's good, and it's good for us to do that, uh, so, so we're exploring this whole idea, what does it look like to, to, to run the race, what does it look like to persevere in our faith, specifically in the context of the book of Hebrews. Now, maybe this is your first Sunday with us, maybe you just have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay, we'll catch you up real quick. So the book of Hebrews was written probably as a sermon slash letter in the, in the early first century at some point uh, to, to serve as an encouragement to a group of believers who were predominantly evidently uh, Jewish who had taken a step of, of, of following Jesus and become people of Jesus. And, and so they're, they're living in the first century. They're, they're going through a, a lot of trials and persecutions. They're going through... Uh, just some really hard times, and they're on the verge. They're this close. Can you see how close? Like that close. They're that close to giving up on their faith. They're that close to stepping away from Jesus. And so the purpose of this book, and the purpose especially of these chapters by this writer, is to encourage these believers and tell them to hang on. Now, we can pause right there because... Regardless of this being the book of Hebrews or chapter 8 or chapter 7 or whatever other chapter in the book of Hebrews, the reality is for many of us today, we're in a similar place. We may not be experiencing the same kind of pain and suffering that these people in Hebrews are experiencing, but maybe you need to be encouraged this morning to hang on to your faith. And I hope that the same arguments the writer of Hebrews gives them will serve us as well. And I hope that you will be encouraged this morning, see the number one question that this text is going to ask us today that these people are struggling with is this, is why should I trust God? I, I, I dare you to answer that question. I, I dare you to take on this week, to take on today, go home this afternoon and talk to some random persons and, and just answer that question. Why should you trust God? It is a tough question to answer, but the writer of Hebrews is going to help us to articulate that and he's going to help us to just understand what does it mean to not just be a follower of Jesus, but to persevere in our faith and to hang on. All right, by now, I think I've bought you enough time. I think you've mostly at least found chapter eight of the book of Hebrews. Would you stand with me as we read from the word of God, as we honor him who gave us his word and who still speaks to us today? We'll read the first six verses. But let me ask you right now to Stay standing afterwards so we can pray together, but then also keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring to this a good bit, and we'll also read the following verses as we go. So from the Word of God, Hebrews 8, 
verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle for... See, he says, that you make all things by the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he also is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. We'll stop there for now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you, Father, for creating this space, this time, Father, for us to gather and to step almost in this sacred space, God, where we encounter you in a powerful way through your word. So our prayer is simple today, Father. Would you please speak? Would you please speak, God, for your servants are listening? I pray, Father, you would anoint this time. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you all. So we read the first six verses, and some of you already closed your Bibles and stopped taking notes, and you're ready to walk out. Uh, I know. This, this, this is a tough passage. Let's just, let's just put it out there. However, before we go any further, I'm, I'm going to help you out just real quick. I'm going to give you a simple one-sentence summary of this whole verse, and maybe I will walk out, right? The, the, the summary sentence is this. Is that the writer of Hebrews is simply telling these people, put your trust in Jesus because Jesus is better. Yeah, that's it. Put your trust in Jesus because Jesus is better. He is better than anything else this world has to offer and has ever been able to offer. Now, I know as you're wrestling with this text, you're seeing all these words and you're seeing all these terms and some of you may be more or less familiar with it. I tell you what, I've been through a lot of schooling and I'm still wrestling with some of this, okay? And, and, and so I kind of feel like this, this, this text is a little bit like this, this recipe book I found a while back. No, I do not read recipe books and cookbooks for fun. Please don't think that. But um, I came across this cookbook from 1914, and I am pretty convinced this book may have caused World War I. And this is why, let me, there you go. There's a picture of the book and this guy. I hope it's the guy who wrote it because that's the picture I went with it. But, but this book's name is Le Répertoire de la Cuisine. It's written in English, believe it or not. And, and this is the world's worst cookbook, I, I would argue, First of all, that book has 3,000 recipes in it. I'm not kidding you, 3,000 recipes. Now, what I would really like to do is read a recipe to you in English, don't panic. I'll read a, a, this recipe to you, and I will read every single word of this recipe. So maybe if you want to go fix lunch afterwards, go ahead and take notes, right? But, but here's the recipe. You ready? Okay, that was a question. You ready? All right. So... This recipe is for a dish called poulet Alexandra. It's chicken, y'all. All right, here's the recipe. <clears throat> Lard with tongue and truffles, 
Poach, remove the Supremes, replace with muslin force meat, reshape the bird, coat with more nice sauce, glaze, garnish with tartlets, filled with asparagus heads, place a scallop of Supreme on each, surround with thread of pale glaze. Period. Now, get to your stations and go make it. That, that was the whole recipe, I'm not kidding you. That is the whole thing. Um, and I know there's cooks in the room, and right now you're really mad at me, but uh, that, that's the thing, and I tell you what, that's not helpful. Is it helpful? Not really. Now, <laughs> kind of sort of helpful, okay. So you know what chicken is, you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> they just fried the thing, get over with. No, no, I know, we're all getting hungry, I get it. No, no, this recipe actually, in full disclosure, uh, this whole book actually is, is written with cooks in mind, with chefs in mind. All it is sort of like a reference cookbook where a chef or a cook can just look at it and will we'll say, okay, I know what all these weird words are and, and I can throw this thing together with this razzle and dazzle of really cool techniques and big words. And the end of the day, I have this fantastic, awesome dish that you will just absolutely enjoy. For most of us, it's just simply not the case. We probably need a dictionary to just look up every single word in that recipe, Right? Now, Hebrews 8 is very similar to this because the, the writer of Hebrews is throwing out a bunch of words that many of us are not all that familiar with, but that his audience is very familiar with. And so there's this language, right, of, 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 of Jesus as a high priest, this language of the tabernacle, this language of the sacrificial system. There's even references to covenants in a little bit. It's a lot of words that we may know the word, but clearly he is, he is doing something with us that many of us just don't quite get just because of a lack of familiarity with us. So what I would love to do is maybe um, be, be not your chef this afternoon. This is not my job, but, but I would love to just help you just maybe wrestle with most of this. And, and, and it's so important to understand both the context of the audience in their persecution, in their trials, in their pains, in their suffering, that is challenging their faith, but also understand the context of the audience in terms of who they are. Because you see, if I, like I said earlier, if you just sum up this text, first of all, you see number one on your notes there, it's just, it's just as simple. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's it. Jesus is better. Say that with me. Jesus is better. Now, now, the question for, the, for these uh, readers and, and this audience in, in, in um, Hebrews 8 is, is to try and figure out why, why. Why would Jesus be better? I'm looking at my circumstances. I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at all these things going on around me. And my faith is in shambles and in ruins. And I'm this close to giving up on God and on Jesus. Why would I continue? Why would I trust Jesus? Because Jesus is better. Well, how come? So what the writer does as he takes his audience on this journey that goes way back. You know, he, he takes them back to the very beginning. He takes them to the very beginning even of creation. And he's going to drop these hands, these, these stones, these, these way markers as they go, as they journey to get them to the destination. Because let me just tell you right now, the destination is still coming. The finish line is still coming. And that is why we should hang in there. That's why we should persevere. If, if you've ever run... A race, a marathon, a half marathon. If you walk to the fields, you want to give up halfway, right? 
You're ready to just say, okay, I want to be done with this thing. My calves are burning. My shoes are wore out. I, I have no reason to keep going. But the same way I would tell you there, the writer of Hebrews here is telling them, hang on because the finish line is still coming. Jesus is better and he will carry you through. And so he takes them to the beginning. He takes them to the very story of creation when God creates the heavens and the earth and he declares it good and he creates man and woman and declares them very good. And he gives them this task to partner with him to rule over, to, to steward creation. But man and woman decide, <laughs> we don't want nothing to do with this partnership, God. We're gonna do it our way. We want full control over this thing. And so they rebel against God. They reject God. They sin. And they reveal the darkness and the brokenness of the human heart. And if we're all honest, all of us echo with that, resonate with that this morning. But the story goes on. In that moment when they fall, in that moment when they step away from God, in that moment when they reject God, God also makes a promise to them saying that one day one will come that will crush sin. It will crush the head of the serpent that led them to sin. So as you read, as you turn the pages of your Bible, as you turn the pages of the story, we walk through the stories of Genesis and we come to the story of Noah where humanity is so broken, so miserable, so terrible, so far away from God that God says, you know what, it's time to be done with this. And he floods the planet, he floods the earth, save for one family, Noah and his people. And he comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I will enter into a covenant with you. You may not be perfect, but I will never again destroy this planet in the same way until redemption is fulfilled. And we keep turning the pages of the story and we come just a few generations later to the story of Abram, this, this guy of the Middle East, of Ur of the Chaldeans. And this man is called the friend of God. Who would want to be called the friend of God? By God, I hope most of us, yes. And God walks with him. And as he walks with Abram, he says, Abram, through you, through your family, through your descendants, who one day will be as many as the stars in the sky, I want to bless the earth. I want to bless the nations. I want to be a blessing to others. And through y'all, I will bring redemption and I will bring peace to this world. In spite of his wrestling with God, Abram continues and the story keeps on. And we keep turning the pages of our Bibles. We keep turning the pages of the story. And we get a few generations later, and Abram's descendants, just a few generations later, are all enslaved in Egypt. And then we see the story of the brokenness and the bloody mess of bondage, of slavery. And they're stuck. And there's no hope. And there's nowhere to go. But God steps in, true to his promise to Abraham, he steps in. And he sends this man, Moses, to lead them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of what they were stuck at, into this movement towards him and to the promises that he made. We even call it the promised land, y'all. And, and, and as he takes them there, they take this pause in the desert. And it's this pivotal couple of chapters in the Old Testament, in Exodus 19 and 20, when God reveals himself to Moses and to the people in his holiness and is the sacred space where God reveals his will for them. And he says, I know that y'all are broken people and you don't really want to do, you don't even really know how to do what is good in my eyes. So God gives them the law. He gives them these rules to say, listen, here's the rules, follow these rules. And he steps into this covenant again, into this partnership, into this agreement 
where he says, you obey this, I will bless you. You disobey, you transgress this, I will curse you. But I will not abandon you. There is a difference. In that same place, they also understand that perfection is not the expectation. By the way, you ever think about that? God's expectation is not perfection. That's why he gives them the sacrificial system. He says you have to bring these animals, these beings, and you will kill them and you will sacrifice them to make up for your sin. They will essentially die instead of your sin, instead of your transgressions. And they will use a priest to mediate that blessing, to mediate that forgiveness. But the story is not over, right? The story keeps going and we keep turning the pages and we come to King David and King David was a good guy who was not always that good. It's a story of adultery and a story of murder and a story of lie, but it's still a man after God's own heart. We wanna be called a man or woman after God's own heart, right there. But God says, yes, you're good and yes, all these things are great, but here's the thing, David, you are not the one that will crush the serpent. You're not the one that will crush sin but one of your descendants will. Through your line, I will bring about that redemption. And we keep turning the pages and we keep seeing how God reveals himself. And we see how the people of God reject him time and time again, when he curses them for their disobedience and he sends them in exile. And in that moment, you see how God steps in once again through the prophets. And they announce that one will come one day that will make things right. That one will come one day that will be used by God to bring transformation, to bring change. As a matter of fact, in, in the book of Jeremiah in chapter one, we have this wonderful passage where he, he tells us that not only will, will they want to do good, they will have the law of God written on their hearts. It will be inscribed in themselves. And actually, you know what? That same passage in Jeremiah 31, it's the second half of chapter eight in Hebrews. If you have your Bible still open, look with me there in verse eight of Hebrews eight. I think you can do that, Hebrews eight, eight. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The prophets are announcing that one is coming that is going to complete the covenant. That's going to complete this, 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 this relationship that God has stepped into in the book of Exodus. And that one day, this one that will complete this will crush the serpent. That will be the one that will renew creation once and for all. But with that promise, there is silence. And if you're familiar with Bible study, you know that after the prophets, there's just dead silence. You don't hear from God for 
for centuries. Nothing. But then we turn the page into the New Testament. And the very beginning, we read of the birth of the King, King Jesus. And we see that in Jesus, he fulfills every lacking, every crack, every piece that was missing in the old covenant. And in Jesus, it's fulfilled. In Jesus, God steps into this new agreement, into this new partnership with mankind. When Jesus shows that his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and even his ascension all reflect that, that, that he is the one. That he is of the lineage of Abraham. That he lived perfectly in the eyes of the law. That he is the son of David, the king of Judah. That he, is, that he is the one that they had been waiting on. And that is when we turn into Hebrews 8. And they're looking and they're seeing the story. And they're saying, okay, wait, 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 wait what now? Wait, wait, what's going on? As Jesus is not seen as just an addition to the story so far. He is the fulfillment of the story so far. That until Christ the best they had was just a hollow echo of everything Christ would come and fulfill. Look at verse five with me. He says there, um, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. See, see all these things that Jesus came to serve, that Jesus came to minister in, was to complete the Old Testament, to complete the Old Covenant. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. As the writer of Hebrews is writing this text, is writing these words, is preaching this sermon, and he's trying to talk these believers from stepping away from their faith. They're not just potentially stepping away from their faith. They're stepping back into the old covenant. They're stepping back into where they were. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, okay, guys, so, so you're in this place, in this awkward place where you're thinking about stepping away from faith, stepping away from Jesus. I've just proved to you that Jesus is better. So essentially what you're telling me is you're, you're, you're ready and willing to step away from what is better to what is good. I mean, think about this. The, the old covenant was pretty good. That is the best humanity had. That was the best hope humanity had to be reconciled to God was the old covenant. That's good, but Jesus is better. The priests and the sacrifices, they were good, but Jesus is better. The lamb and the blood that was spilled at the Exodus to bring people out of slavery was good, but Jesus is better. Why would you settle for second best? I mean, it's kind of the equivalent of someone who is flying around the world in first class, right? And halfway through decide that they're going to move back to second class or to economy because it's better back there. It's not. It's not. Why would you do that? That's silly. It's kind of like someone who is growing a beautiful flower garden and deciding overnight, like, no, you know what? I'm going to settle for fake plants. It's not better. I mean, we all know life plants are better, right? 
Like you, you, you get the colors, you get the vibrancy, you get the, the joy of growing a, a seed or a little plant into something as big and flourishes. You, you even get the great things like pollen and allergies from it, right? I mean, why would you settle for a fake plant? Why would you settle for second class? Why would you settle for the old covenant? Why would you settle for anything less than Jesus if Jesus is truly better? Why would you? There is no good reason except that for a moment and for an instant, they're focused more on their circumstances. They're focused more on the things they're experiencing. They probably experience a little bit more on their feelings than they are on keeping their eyes on the finish line, which is yet to come. Because Jesus is better and nothing can change that. So not only is he better, Christ also has something better to offer. The text tells us that he represents a better promise. Not only, excuse me, is he the high priest he talks about. Not only is he ministering in a sanctuary there in verse 2. Not only is he a mediator in verse 6, but it says that he is a mediator of a better covenant that is enacted on better promises. Better promises than what they've had so far. Better promises than what they've experienced so far. Better promises than they've heard of so far. You see, the hope they have is even better than the hope they had before. What are these promises? Well, first of all, is the promise that if you accept Christ as sufficient to reconcile you to God through his sacrifice, his death on the cross and his resurrection, then you are accepted into the family of God once and for all. Jesus said it is finished. Then there's also the promise of Jesus at the ascension saying that I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. That's another promise he made. Another promise he made, he said, I want to leave you alone. I will send you my spirit. I will send you my helper to not just simply be with you, but to also empower you, to give you strength, to give you wisdom, to give you the fullness of God in you. That's another promise. But you know what's another promise that we tend to forget about? That he also promised that he'll be back. Jesus is coming back. The question to the church or to the believers in the book of Hebrews is this, is are you living like Jesus is better? That's really, really what this is, is Are you living like Jesus is better? Because the truth is that the story of redemption, as we see from Genesis through Christ, is one of a God who keeps his promises regardless of our circumstances. Y'all, our God does not change his mind and, 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 and his promises because we feel like it or not. Praise Jesus for that, by the way. But rather, we step into a story where God invites us into his story where he will keep his promises. And nothing, nothing can change that because he showed us time and time again that he has kept his promises yesterday. He keeps his promises today and he will keep his promises tomorrow. Now, what are the implications for us today? I'm going to close. Four implications for us. First of all, Jesus is worth whatever the price is to follow him. The writer of Hebrews is not telling them, hey guys, you're a little dramatic here. Yeah, so a few of you will die because of your faith. It's not a big deal. He's not doing that. The writer, the writer of Hebrews is also not saying, hey, nothing is going on. There's nothing to see. Just move along. 
He's not doing that. He he is saying, I know you're paying a price. I know it's hard. I know perseverance is hard work. I know it's hard. But Jesus is worth the price because Jesus is better. He is better. He is better. Number two, Jesus is better than anything else we can put our trust in. Again, they were willing to trade in Jesus for something that was good, just not nearly as good. We, if we're honest, do a lot of the same things, don't we? We, we, we want to trade in Jesus sometimes for things that are just a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more tangible, a little bit more immediate, a little bit more, you know, I can wrap my mind around this today. Oh, we want to trade in Jesus sometimes just, you know, for comfort, for convenience. I want to trade in Jesus for my paycheck. Or, or maybe there's a good thing like my promotion. Or maybe there's a good thing like family. Or maybe there's a good thing like my kids and my, my spouse. Or maybe there's a good thing just like the good life. Or maybe there's, there's all kinds of good things. And we have to be careful that we're not trading in Jesus even for those good things. Because Jesus is better. He is better than anything else we can put our trust in. Even the best alternative. Number three. If he is worth dying for, he is worth living for. Let me say that again. If Jesus is worth dying for, he is worth living for. Can I, can I tell you a quick secret? Maybe some of you are still kind of new to all this. Let me just tell you this. It's actually a lot easier to die for a cause than it is to live for a cause. It's a lot easier to just say, I want to be done with it. I'm done. I stepped over the threshold. I'm done. And it is to be willing to persevere and fight for it every single day. But you will only do that if Jesus is truly better. You will only truly take on every day of your life living for Jesus if Jesus is actually better. If Jesus is better than everything else. If he's better than the good things, if he's better than the bad things. The believers in Hebrews 8 were considering giving up. They were ready to stop living for Jesus. But the writer says Jesus is better. And if he is who he says he is, he's worth living for. Finally, Finally, the greatest implication for all of us, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You see, when, when, when we come to Jesus, when we confess our sin, when we admit to him that we are guilty and that we need Jesus to save us, and we place our trust and our faith in Christ, that is not the finish line. We've just now entered the race. And when we walk every day through the good days, the bad days, the ugly days, we're running the race. And the finish line is still in sight. It's still coming. 
But the best is yet to come. Because the story of Jesus doesn't end at the resurrection, at the ascension. If you keep turning the pages of your Bibles, if you keep reading the story, you get to the book of Revelation and we're told what it looks like at the finish line. And when we're told what it looks like when we gather with all the peoples of every tribe and nation and tongue. And we gather in our throne room with our king. And we worship him, we may make much of him. That is the finish line. That is the best, because until then, we're not there yet. Yes, we have Christ as our mediator, as our advocate, who stands up and who speaks up for us to the Father every day. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit who prays and helps us pray every day. Yes, all that is good and it's great, and Jesus is better, but there's something even better yet, and that is to one day be united with our King in His throne room, worshiping Him together. The best is yet to come. So I don't know what your circumstances are today. I, I just don't. I know some of you are dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. And maybe you don't think your faith is, is that shaken. Or maybe you do. Maybe you don't really know what the answers are. Maybe you're just really struggling with the answers. Maybe just in the day, frankly, where you wonder if Jesus is truly better. And I can tell you Jesus is better all day long, but like the writer of Hebrews, I want to tell you this. The best is yet to come. Persevere, don't give up. Push through this. Whether this lasts a week, a month, a year, 10 years, till the end of your life. Live for Jesus. But we also have to just confront the truth that there are some of us who are not followers of Jesus. While living for themselves or living for whatever else. Can I ask you why, why you wouldn't be in first class and still choose to be in the back somewhere? Can I choose you why you would choose to live in a world of death and fake plants? when you can step in a world of life. Can I ask you why would you choose to walk in death and darkness when you can walk in light and life? Why would you choose hopelessness over the only one that's ever proven to defeat death and hopelessness? Why would you, what you got to lose? And I invite you this morning, this afternoon, to at least think about it and to at least talk about it. I'll be here to talk about you. We'll have some people in the response team here to talk to you if you want. But I know you got no good reason to reject him. Let's pray. Our God, you are good. And we thank you for your word, Father, and we thank you that you speak to us. I pray that your spirit would continue, Lord, to move us closer to you. And I pray, Father, that you would just lead us. Help us, Father, to be honest. And Father, just listen to your voice this morning.
pray, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who, who has taken every step, Lord, to push you away, that they would today take a step to embrace you. I pray, God, that they would take a step of faith and follow you, Lord, and know that Jesus is better and thus live a better life.